Thank you for listening to the Giving Light Podcast. We are a family church and world outreach center. Our heart is to empower you to walk in true freedom and equip you to impact your world. Please visit our website at givinglight.org to learn more about us and our many resources, including original music by Brave Music, e-courses for leaders, tools for raising powerful kids, and more. If you would like to support Giving Light financially, visit our Give Online page to choose the best giving method for you. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy this message. Today I wanted to talk about seizing your moment. Now, it's important to understand that every circumstance that we face becomes an opportunity. Actually, the definition for opportunity means a set of circumstances that makes it possible to do something. So whatever you're facing, it's actually giving you an opportunity to do something. Whatever whatever we're going through with our circumstances, we have the responsibility to do something. But how will, we, how will we respond? Will it be out of fear and frustration? Will it be with pain or purpose, with fear or courage? You see, many people miss their opportunities because they're trapped in the emotion of their present circumstance. Like I said, an opportunity is a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something But many of us miss it because we're trapped, we're stuck in the emotion of our present circumstance, whether it be fear, frustration, anger, resentment, bitterness. Let's look at James 1, 2 through 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, various trials. So a lot of times when we go through things, we think, you know, um, I'm the only one in the world that's going through this right now. But the truth is, and what James says is, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. So the testing of your faith produces patience. That can also be defined as endurance, steadfastness, constancy, faithfulness, and fidelity. And the cool thing about fidelity, it means same as or equal to the original. I don't know if you guys remember this, but back when I was a kid, we used to make mixed tapes. And and every time you would make a new mix of like your favorite song or you you record it onto a cassette tape, the signal will be uh, diminished. It would be um, distorted or the quality would decrease. And then, then CDs came out, and then, then you would see these, um, this uh, advertisement, high fidelity. And fidelity is same as or equal to the original. Now, in our digital age, in our digital age it's just ones and zeros. And so you can actually get a perfect copy of the original master. So think of this. The testing of your faith produces fidelity. Well, what is our original pattern? Or who is our original pattern? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is our original pattern. And so when we count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces fidelity. So when we count it all joy with whatever we're facing, guess what happens? We enter in 
We enter into the process and transformation into our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we count it all joy, we are entering into this transformation process of becoming like Christ. Hebrews 12.2. Remember, Jesus is our example. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want, I want you guys to see the parallel between James 1 and Hebrews 12. What does it say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What does James say? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces fidelity. Do you see that? The author and finisher of our faith. And then in James, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces then in Hebrews, it says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross? What does James 1 say? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Do you see this parallel, this parallel between the two? So Jesus endured the cross. Why? Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy set before him. Why? Why can we have victory when we face various trials, for the joy that is set before us, knowing that the testing of your faith produces fidelity, which is same as or equal to the original. So joy is not just a feeling or an emotion. It is a byproduct of faith. Let's say this again. Joy is not just a feeling or an emotion. It is a byproduct of faith. So joy is prophetic in nature because it enables you to see past your present struggle. Why is joy important for this time and season? Because it's actually prophetic in nature. It helps you to see beyond your moment. It helps you to see beyond your pain. It helps you to see beyond your struggle. Come on. Joy is the ability to rightly discern your circumstances. I'm going to say this again. Joy is the ability to rightly discern your circumstances. Remember what I said before. Many people miss their opportunity because they're strapped or they're stuck in their motion of their present circumstance. But if we walk in joy, which is prophetic in nature, come on. If we walk in joy, we will be able to rightly discern our circumstances. And that's really important, and we'll get into that. Many of us miss our opportunity. What is opportunity? Opportunity is a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. Many of us miss our opportunity because we're stuck in the negative emotions of our circumstances rather than aligning our hearts to the joy set before us. So what does this tell us? With the right attitude, crisis is fertile ground for innovation. With the right attitude, crisis and difficulty is fertile ground for kingdom transformation. Here's an important, we, important question that we need to ask ourselves: Why would I have joy when I'm in the middle of a trial? in the middle of the difficulty, 
in the middle of the pain. I remember this old commercial. I think it was maybe late 80s, early 90s. And I believe it was a Wendy's commercial, I think. And there were these ladies sitting down, and they were looking at these burgers. And I believe they were McDonald's burgers. And they looked, and one of the ladies said, where's the beef? And so, I don't know if you guys remember that. Uh, Destiny does. Where's the beef? And for us, sometimes we're looking at our circumstances and we're saying, where's the joy? How can I have joy when I'm in the midst of this pain? Where do I find it when I'm experiencing everything that is contrary to the feeling or the emotion of joy? Hebrews 12, 2. Here's the answer. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now, in Scripture, there's a common thread that connects our circumstances, the things that we face, and our attitude, which is our perspective and our perception and ultimately our response to those circumstances. John 13, 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Okay. You know, a lot of times in pastor's offices we'll have these, these quotes on the wall and someone's rowing a boat or climbing a mountain and it'll be like, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we put these promises in front of us, but actually here is a promise that Jesus gives us. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So what is the circumstance? The circumstance is tribulation. It's distress and persecution. But our attitude, our response is to be of good cheer. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make much sense, right? It doesn't make much sense. Tribulation and being of good cheer. Well, let's look at another verse, and I'll put it all together for you guys. Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, that sounds good to me, right? But what we don't realize is all these things are in the previous verse, and what are all those things? It's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or peril, or sore. Yay, right? No. But what does it say? Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. But here's, here's the, the answer. Here's the key. In both examples, our attitude towards our circumstances is a reflection of the way we perceive Christ. Are you guys getting this? If we see him as an overcomer, we will be of good cheer in the midst of tribulation because he has overcome the world. And actually, earlier in that verse, it says that in me, in Christ you may have peace. Then in Romans 8, 8, 37, if we believe that we are loved by him, then our attitude in all things and in all circumstances will be one of a conqueror. So in both examples, our attitude towards our circumstances is a direct reflection of the way we perceive Christ. Why can we have joy in the midst of various trials and tribulations? 
Because how we perceive Christ to be. Come on. So it is our perception of Christ that aligns a right attitude with our circumstance. And why is this important? Because how we perceive our trials, how we perceive our struggles and our circumstances will directly affect how we interact with them. So my question that I have for you guys today is will we seize our moment or will our moment seize us? Remember, an opportunity is just a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. Whatever you're facing right now is actually an opportunity to do something. So will you seize your moment or will your moment seize you? But how do we do that? We need to have our, our, our eyes and our heart set on Jesus because it is our perception of him that make it possible to be of good cheer in tribulation. Come on. So be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Joy not only makes it possible to rightly discern your circumstances, but now you're able to show an expression of it in the midst of your circumstance. Remember that joy is a byproduct of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. For by it, for by faith, the elders attained a good testimony, meaning they took what was invisible, the things that could not be seen, and they made it visible that people could actually partake of and experience. So we become a testimony of Christ when we demonstrate joy in the middle of the mess. Come on. We become a testimony of Christ when we walk in joy or we demonstrate joy in the middle of our mess. So you're able to have joy no matter what you're going through because joy helps us see the prize. Remember, joy is prophetic in nature. It helps you to see past your, your, your current circumstance. So joy helps you to see the prize it helps you to see the finished work. It helps you to see the restoration. Come on. But if we look through eyes of fear, fear always leads to death and destruction. But joy helps us to see the finished work, what Christ wants to do in your circumstance. So if you're lacking joy in your circumstance, don't seek joy. Seek Jesus because in your seeking of Jesus, your joy will be revealed. Come on. In your seeking of Jesus, your joy will be revealed. What did Hebrews 12, 2 say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. Joy helps us see the finished work. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So every circumstance that we face becomes an opportunity for transformation. Every circumstance that we face becomes an opportunity for innovation and design and progress and strength and renewed purpose and hope and financial streams. The list could go on and on and on. But the question that I have for you today is, will you seize your moment or will your moment seize you? So whatever you're facing, 
You have been given an opportunity to do something. What is an opportunity? It is a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. So what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Will it be with faith or fear? Will it be frustration and anger or with peace? What are you going to do? Now, I can't tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm tell you, I'm going to tell you that you were called to do something. Now, we need to stop believing that lie, that crippling lie that tells us that we need to wait for our opportunity to come. Have you ever been there? I'll just wait. I'll just wait until my opportunity comes, until the light is shining upon me. But the truth is, an opportunity is a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. Will we seize our moment or will our moment seize us? So every opportunity that we face is an opportunity to do something. Now, what are you going to do? Well, how do we do this? We must direct our attention to the joy set before us. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. What does James tell us to do? He, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you're faced with various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, produces fidelity, which means same as or equal to the original. And that's what we want. We want that transformation. So joy is prophetic in nature, and it positions you to rightly discern your circumstance. If you do not rightly discern your circumstance, you won't know how to address it. You won't know how to walk through it. But with joy, we're able to rightly discern it, and we're able to to position our heart in the midst of it. It was funny. I was working on this sermon this week, and I was uh, um, scrolling through Twitter, and I saw Chris Valentin. He posted this quote. I was like, he must know I'm preaching this. So he said, Happiness is a state of mind. Joy is a state of being. Happiness is an emotional response to life. Joy is our soul's response to our condition in Christ, rooted not in the circumstance, but in relationship. Come on. So this would not be a sermon, one of my sermons, if I didn't give you some practical things. And so I want to give you a few obstacles and a few negative mindsets that you'll definitely encounter when you try to seize your moment. Now, this list is not um, in any particular order, but I will say this first one, I would say it's a big one. So the first obstacle to seizing your moment, okay, pausing for effect, okay. The first obstacle to seizing your moment is blame. Now, blame is not wrong in itself. Blame means to assign responsibility for fault or wrong. Let's say you're driving down the street and someone pulls out in front of you and sideswipes you. And then the, the police officer comes and said, what happened? Well, I was driving down the street. This person pulled out, blah, blah, blah. So blame in itself is not wrong. It's if it's accurately assessing the situation, assuming that the information is accurate and truthful. So blame is not wrong in itself, 
But blame will become a roadblock. Blame will become an obstacle when we allow it to assign our responsibility to someone or someone to something or someone else. So the moment you relinquish your responsibility by blaming others, blaming systems, blaming circumstances, is the moment you weaken your resolve to do something. Why would you do something if it's always someone else's fault? Because what happens is when blame takes away our responsibility, all the power is in, in, is in everybody else's court. Blame becomes an obstacle when it demands complete attention. When all we can see is the wrong people, uh, when all we can see is the wrong people are doing to us, blame has taken the attention away from what we have power to change. Now, this may be a real shocker for all of you. How do you know when you signed over your right to be powerful to do something or How do you know when you signed over your right to be powerful to someone or something? I know it's going to be a real shocker. You feel powerless. How do you know that you signed over your right to be powerful? You feel powerless. You see, when you relinquish your responsibility to someone else or something, you sign over your right to be powerful. Blame should never release you from your responsibility. Why? Because it surrenders your power to do something. What is an opportunity? It's a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. And we won't do something if it's always someone else's fault. Systems, circumstances, people. If you're going to seize your moment, you must direct your attention to what you have power to control. Now, what do you have power to control? The biggest thing that you have power to control is yourself. I love when my kids come in and, well, I don't know if I love it, but they come in, they're upset, and, and then they're trying to tell me what happened. They're, they're assigning blame is what they're doing. And, and they'll start out and say, Aiden, late, they made, and I say, wait a second, wait a second. They made you. And I'll say, I don't want the conversation to start with blaming someone else. Tell me what happened and what you did, and then we'll go from there. But see, blame takes all the power away. Whatever you're facing, you've been given an opportunity to do something. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. For I have learned for whatever state I am to be content. So this also tells me something, that this, just didn't, that this just didn't come natural to Paul. It's something that he had to work on. It's something that he had to place intentionality. He had to focus on it. And it's something that he had to make a choice to do. For I have learned whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. That doesn't sound very good. I know how to abound. That sounds a lot better. Yeah, I like that one. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full. Sounds awesome. Unless it's Thanksgiving and sometimes full is really bad. I've learned to be full and to be hungry. No, we don't like that one. Both to abound. Hey. And to suffer need. No, I don't like that one. Then comes the big scripture verse that we all know. I can do all things through Christ Christ 
who strengthens me. So this verse is not just saying, well, I can just do whatever I put my hand to is going to prosper. It's saying, no, I know how to do abounding well, and I know how to be abased well. I know how to be full and do that well, and I know how to be empty and do that well. The Amplified Translation says, I am self-sufficient. Now we're talking about not blaming others, keeping your power. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. I am ready for anything. Come on, say, I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses me with inner strength and confident peace. Remember, it is our perception of Christ that aligns the right attitude with our circumstances. If your circumstance is bigger than your God, you will function out of fear and anxiety, which is the opposite of contentment. What does Paul say? I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. Now, you have to believe that God is abundant in all things. He can supply every single one of your needs. I am self-sufficient. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he is abundant life, a free gift of abundant life. So we see here that Paul's abundant life and how I'm defining abundant life is his ability to do all things well. How do you know that you're walking in abundance? Is if you can do abounding well and you can do abasing well. It's not good. So he was intentional to do it. He had to lean into it. He had to learn it. He had to posture his heart for it. He had to intentionally ignore the distractions and place his attention on Christ, his abundant supplier. How did Paul learn? And you can actually see it early in the chapter, and I'm not going to preach that right now, but that he said to rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. And then he goes through all these things, think on these things. So he actually tells you how he learned to be content in all things. But what he had to do is he had to lean in. He had to learn from it. He had to posture his heart for it. Content, content in the Greek means to be independent of external circumstances. So Paul refused to surrender his power over to his external circumstances. How do we know this? What does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That sounds very powerful. It doesn't matter what happens around me because I can control what's happening in me. And what does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you might be thinking, really, all things? Are we talking like all things? Yeah, Paul said it. And if Paul said all things, he generally means all things. He was beaten he was tortured, he was shipwrecked, he was slandered, he was imprisoned. So when Paul says all things, he means all things. We will never walk in the power and responsibility that we have in Christ if we sign it over to blame. So the first roadblock or the first obstacle that you encounter when you seize your moment is blame. The second obstacle 
is distractions. If you're going to seize your moment, you have to know what's important. Because the enemy loves to distract you from your purpose. The enemy loves to draw your attention to what he's doing. Come on. The enemy loves to appear bigger than he actually is. Now, if we are unaware of this tactic, we will fall for it. I'm going to say that again. If we are unaware of this tactic of distraction, we will fall for it. 2 Corinthians 2.11, so Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. How then do we keep our eyes on Jesus, but not be ignorant of the enemy's tactics? That's a good question. So we're commanded to keep our eyes on Jesus, but we're also commanded not to be outsmarted or be ignorant of his schemes. So before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about perspective. And perspective, perspective can mean a couple different things, but one of those things is an accurate, say that with me, an accurate rating of what is important and isn't. Come on. So it is an accurate rating of what is important and what isn't. So I'm going to explain this by using an example of our natural eyes or our physical vision. Did you know that it's only a small percentage of your total vision that is clear and in focus? Our clearest vision is where we direct our gaze. So if you could do this example with me, you can pull out a pen or you can just use your finger. And you put it out in front of you. And I want you to focus on the tip of your finger. Now, if your eyes are working correctly and you have your glasses on or not, you will see that the tip of your finger is in focus. But as you keeping your eyes focused on the tip of your finger, you can see all this, you can see all this stuff around here is blurry, right? So notice at a certain point, things become blurry and out of focus. So when you focus your eyes on something, your brain is making unconscious unconscious decision for you. You make a conscious choice of what you have, what has your attention. So like when we looked at our finger, I'm making a conscious choice to look at the tip of my finger. But then my brain, without me even knowing how it does it, it says all this stuff out here is less important and it will be blurry because you have chosen to look at this thing and focus on this thing. So your brain is saying, this is what is important. And this is less important. And how do we know it? One is in focus and one is blurry. So what does this tell us? That your attention reveals your perceived value. You guys follow me? Your attention, what you focus on, has your perceived value. So what has my attention holds my greatest value? Is your attention on your circumstance or is it on God? Because what you focus on has your greatest value or holds your greatest value. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So what is this saying? Saying this is the blurry stuff. This is the stuff that we need to cast off. 
And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Whoa, what is this saying? Just like that example of looking at the tip of your finger, it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So I want you guys to get this. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, it is a spiritual act of worship. Because what holds your attention holds your greatest value, and it reveals the honor that you have. So if our eyes are fixed on Jesus, it is a spiritual act of worship. The things in our life that have our attention reveal to us what we value most. 1 Samuel 17, 26. Now, let me give you the background of this. Basically, uh, Goliath came out, and he's been hurling insults at the armies of God, the Israelites, and the Israelites did nothing. They were afraid. So then David comes into the camp, and David asked the man standing near, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? What What will be done? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So the whole army was captivated by fear, and a shepherd boy was captivated by a big God. Now, I want you to see this. It was the same giant, but it was different perspectives. What is the definition of perspective? It is an accurate rating of what is important and what isn't. Are you guys getting this? David looked at the giant and said, I'm making an accurate rating of what is important and what isn't. My God is important. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would defy the armies of the living God? So when we shift our gaze towards Jesus, our current circumstance can be viewed in proper perspective. When we shift our eyes to Jesus, then we can rightly discern, come on, we can rightly discern our circumstance. Remember something. David still had to confront and defeat Goliath. See, I think a lot of times we think, well, I, I looked, I fixed my eyes on Jesus, and then I'm hoping that this problem just goes away because my eyes are fixed on Jesus. David still had to confront Goliath, even though his perspective was still right. Come on. But what does this tell us about right perspectives? Right perspectives release perfect strategies. I'm going to say that again. Right perspectives release perfect strategies. So David, they say, put on the king's armor. Now, this isn't going to work. I'm going to take what I have, which was perfect strategy, because he had perfect perspective. And I don't know about you, But getting in a fight from a distance is a lot better than getting up close and personal. And obviously, it was more effective. 
So now your, now your peripheral vision, that remember the blurry vision, can detect motion causing us to re redirect our gaze. This part of our vision can be something that hinders our focus. Now, as a parent, I understand this. Because when we actually could meet a church, I would be talking to one of you, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see my child doing something that's not good. And even though I'm trying to focus on what you're saying, I see this thing happening over in my blurry vision. How many of you can relate to that? So the enemy, not that my kids are the enemy, but the enemy likes to move around in your peripheral vision. So let's say your eyes are fixed on him. What does the enemy like to do? Hey, look at what I'm doing over here. Hey, look at what I'm doing over here. Hey, look at me. And the strategy is distraction. The strategy is to take your eyes off of Jesus and put your attention on him. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we just ignore what the enemy is doing? Because remember, what, where we place our attention holds our greatest value. So do we just ignore what the enemy is doing? Like the, the enemy is stealing, killing, and destroying and be like, nothing's happening. I don't know what's happening. Oh, everything is good and wonderful. Is that what we're supposed to do? But our, our peripheral vision protects us from danger. It's a flash of motion, perhaps a flying object, that tells us that we must act now. Now I'm going to re reveal a little secret here, but this is Katie's worst nightmare. Flying objects in the air. So don't ever say, hey, Katie, catch this. Very scary for her, okay? <laughs> so that peripheral vision also tells us hey, we must act now because danger is coming. 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. So we're not oblivious to it. We're not ignorant of it. And we're not deliberately unconscious of it. Like, I don't know what's happening. I'd, oh, uh, just ignore what the enemy's doing. So I'm not a believer that thinks we should just ignore the devil and pretend like he's not there, but I don't believe he should be our focus. I believe that there are times where we need to take our God-given authority and confront the works of darkness. This is why we are told not to be ignorant of his schemes. So it's not like he's our attention, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, we need to identify it and address it. But this is why we need to be discerning. John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. So do I engage or do I disregard what the enemy is doing? Because in some cases, it is just to ignore what he's doing because he's just trying to get attention. Or do we address it or don't we address it? So the question I have to ask too is, where's the joy? Joy helps us to rightly discern our circumstances because it helps us to see past what we're experiencing. So if you're not in joy, how can you rightly discern? Another way to say it is if you are functioning out of fear, how will you correctly address the works of darkness? 
But joy, joy helps you to rightly discern your circumstance. In order for us to seize our moment, we must eliminate all distractions and focus our attention on what we value the most. So the first one is, the first obstacle is blame because blame takes away your power. The second one is distraction. The third obstacle to seizing your moment is waiting for a return to normal. I'm gonna say this again. The third obstacle to seizing your moment is waiting for a return to normal. I have news for you. Change is gonna happen. It's inevitable. Whether we initiate it or it happens around us or to us, whether it's a slowly progressive change or it happens quickly, change is going to happen. For something that is guaranteed, for something that has complete certainty, it would make perfect sense to prepare our hearts for it. Yet people remain in a state of frustration and confusion, bitterness and fear because they have not set their hearts and readied themselves for change. Change is going to happen. The truth is positive change can be perceived negatively based upon your readiness to receive it. I'm going to say that again. Positive change, even change that God brings into our life, positive change can be perceived negatively based on your readiness to receive it. Numbers 13, 30 through 32. Then Caleb quieted, quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. But then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the, pe- against the people for they are stronger than we. And they, have, and they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they have spied out. Do you see the promise was prepared? The promise was ready to be taken, but the people were not ready to take it. Exodus 13, 17. Then Pharaoh finally let the people go. God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though it was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with battle, they will change their minds and return to Egypt. See, a positive change, a positive change can be perceived negatively based upon your readiness to receive it. Have you ever wondered why promises seem to take a long time to be fulfilled? Have you ever wondered that? Could it be that the promises were ready to be taken, but we were not? But I believe that God is saying to us in this season of time more than any other time, I want you to be ready when I say move. I want you to be ready to seize your moment. And seizing your moment may look different from person to person, but I just feel God saying, I want you to be ready when I instruct you. Now, I want, I want to share the significance of God's acceleration. Now, prophets, prophets have been saying this for years, that God was accelerating things. So let's look at the significance of that. 
the quicker he moves, the quicker we need to obey. If God is accelerating things, then we also have a responsibility to obey quicker. As he accelerates, I need to recognize that there are things in my life that I need to hold more loosely. I'm going to say that again. As he accelerates, I need to recognize that there are things in my life that I need to hold more loosely, whether it's habits, thought patterns, perspectives, comfort levels, expectations. Think about this. What were the Israelites complaining about? Where are my leeks and onions? All we have is what you have supplied for us. Whoa. See, as he accelerates, as he is shifting things, we need to recognize that we have to hold things in our life more loosely. Let's put this into perspective. Think about the last time you had a big transition in your life that God led you through. Did it take six months? Did it take a year? Did it take three years? And for some of us, including me, did it take 10 years? Maybe some of you are still going through it. But what happens if it took six days or two weeks or a month? God is asking us to be ready. God is asking us to ready ourselves so that when it's our time to move, we move without hesitation. You see, obedience comes quickly to a heart that is prepared and set to obey. When your heart is set to obey, you've already made up your mind before you're even commanded to do something. It's not about saying yes to a specific assignment. It's about saying yes to him. So my heart is already set on his voice. And so whatever he tells me to do, I've already said yes to because I've already said yes to him. Matthew 6, 33. Set the king, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. If we're going to seize our moment, we can't wait for a return to normalcy. We can't wait for a return to routine. We cannot wait for a return to status quo. Will you seize your moment, or will your moment seize you? Think about it. Am I going to take this opportunity to do something? What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Will it be with fear or faith? Anger, frustration, or peace? An opportunity is just a set of circumstances that make it possible to do something. And the roadblocks or the obstacles that we have to face are blame, their distraction, and the last is waiting for it just to get back to normal. The last one, and I'm not going to preach on this because I preached on it a lot of times, and I'm sure you heard it, but the last obstacle is fear. Fear has one objective in mind, and that is control over you. John 10.10 a thief has 
only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter, and destroy. But I have come to give you everything in abundance, more than you expect. Life in its fullness until you overflow. When you allow fear to control you, its destination is predetermined. I'm going to say that again. When you allow fear to control you, its destination is predetermined. What is the destination of fear? Stealing, killing, and destroying. Fear has one goal in mind, control over you. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. If we are going to rightly discern our circumstances, we must do it with joy. The joy set before us. Come on. Joy is prophetic in nature. It helps us to see past our present struggle, our present circumstance, our present pain. Just like Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So if we're going to rightly discern our circumstances, we must do it with joy. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are pouring out your joy upon all those who have been listening. Lord, I just decree just an opening of their heart to receive what you're pouring out. And Lord, I just decree that from now on, they are going to look at their circumstances rightly through right perspective of joy. Lord, I just thank you and give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name.